welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a Curriculum Development Specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. September is the National Suicide Prevention Month, so we are introducing a series on suicide prevention in the first responder community. Therefore, I want to let listeners know that the topic of suicide in the first responder community will be discussed extensively in this episode. We've taken care to focus on prevention and treatment rather than sensationalizing the topic, but we want to encourage listener discretion if you think that this topic might upset you or bring about thoughts of harming yourself. If you believe that you are in an active mental health crisis, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Dr. April Foreman and Sarah Burns about the different treatment options available and how to find a great clinician that suits the needs of responders. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with April and Sarah about destigmatizing mental health issues, improving the culture towards mental health in first responder departments, peer support, and resources. Co-hosting the podcast with me today is a past guest of the podcast, Dr. Carolyn Corsi. Carolyn is a mental health educator, and she focuses on helping corporate organizations with regard to trauma and loss. Dr. April Foreman is a licensed psychologist, and she is on the executive board of the American Association of Suicidology. She is a clinician and has a lot of experience working within the military and veteran community. She has also done direct clinician work with people who are at high risk of suicide, as well as crisis care and policy and public health considerations. Sarah Burns is a behavioral health specialist for the International Association of Firefighters. The International Association of Firefighters represents the 320,000 professional firefighters across the U.S. and Canada. She is a social worker and public health professional and has been involved in suicide prevention for many years, spanning prevention, intervention, research, and policy. There might be some challenges that a clinician would face when treating a first responder because of the nature of their job. Can you talk a little bit about that? So when you're treating somebody and I, you know, I've had folks in my clinic who have, who have first responder jobs and there are, there are several sort of obstacles or barriers. Some of them are sort of emotional. They're about stigma, about asking for help, uh, about fear of reporting what's going on with me, uh, maybe being judged as uh, you know, less competent or, um, or, or possibly incompetent or unable to do their duty. Um, and, and just even the embarrassment of, of being perceived as weak in some way. I think that, that stigma, as much as we talk about it, I believe that stigma is lower than it's ever been. I'm not saying it's gone, but it's, it's uh, as Sarah Burns really mentioned, um, it's, it's, uh, people are able to talk about suicide more. So there are some actual real obstacles. So if a first responder is mentioning that they are suicidal uh, in a clinical setting, it, there may be a situation where it might actually change the kind of duties that they're allowed to participate in, whether or not they're seen as fit or competent for their duty, uh, whether or not their commanding officer allows them to continue to use a service weapon, for example. And um, it, it, I don't know, 
most of the time clinically, it's actually pretty beneficial to keep your job and to work and to be a part of your team. Uh, and there are wonderful ways to safety plan around having a service weapon while you're at work. But if the clinician is not trained uh, or doesn't understand how to best support a first responder, a, a lot of things could be done that might make someone kind of sad they went to therapy at all. And so you've, you've really got to think through some of those clinical issues. Additionally, there are issues relative to prescriptions. It may be, in fact, that for some first responders uh, in some positions, there are just some mental health prescriptions that are they can't have and yet still be on active duty. And so you have to really sensitively work through some of the very, very practical aspects of them doing their job and balance being able to do their job against their health and safety. And it's a really, really tricky balance sometimes. So a couple things for mental health professionals to know about working with first responders or firefighters uh, in our case. Um, one is that by the time they're in your office asking for assistance, they need it very quickly. Uh, you know, these are groups of people who when a call comes in, when the tones go off, they get up in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night, they stop what they're doing, they'll stop it for eating dinner, and they respond immediately to emergencies that happen in the community. Um, so they have this uh, expectation, perhaps somewhat unrealistic given how our care systems are structured, uh, but the expectation that when they need help, um, they should get it quickly. Um, it's, and to be honest, they should. We should have mental health systems that are better designed uh, to meet the needs of our citizens and our first responders. Uh, so that's one thing to know, that this idea that somebody might call in who's a first responder and accept an appointment a month in the future, it's not acceptable. We have to do better. We have to get them in very quickly. Um, another thing to understand about our first responders is that oftentimes they, they do shift work. Uh, so a firefighter might work one or two days and then have several days off in a row. So our typical appointment structure of we'll come in every Tuesday at three o'clock and I'll see you might not work for these folks. You know, you've got to have more flexibility around your scheduling. You have to be available um, evenings, weekends, off hours, uh, and we can design systems to accommodate this. Oftentimes it just hasn't been done yet. And, um, and I think Sarah's really underscoring something so fundamental, which is that many people don't realize how long of a wait there is for mental health care in your community just on an average day. And um, solving those problems in your community uh, increase the chance very much that we're gonna be solving those for first responders. But in the event that you can't save everybody or tackle every problem, just to solve it, first responder communities might to create special relationships with uh, clinicians who are better trained uh, or special relationships with their mental health system so that that level of system responsiveness is possible. Exactly. Um, to build on that a little more, some first responders might not want to receive treatment at facilities or settings where they bring citizens or patients. Uh, you know, so if there's a hospital that's the closest in the community and there, someone's having uh, a mental health emergency within the department, they might want to drive an extra half hour, 45 minutes, an hour to go somewhere further away where, where the staff at that facility are not going to recognize them. Um, if you're a first responder and you know, you're looking for mental health treatment, the IFF does have an informational handout, uh, finding a clinician, seven questions to ask. Uh, maybe we can link that in the show notes, it's a PDF. Uh, some of the questions are things like, have you worked with first responders, military veterans before? 
if not, you might want to find a clinician who does have that experience. Not that you still can't find a great therapist, uh, but you might want someone who's got a little more understanding of the, the job you do in the profession you have. Uh, you also want to be asking what evidence-based treatments that treatment provider uses because you want a treatment that has been proven to work for the diagnosis that you have. Um, generally, uh, we like to say that if a therapist is not assigning homework and you're in treatment for PTSD, you need to find a new therapist. There's work that needs to happen between these appointments. Uh, that's a lot of where the, the meat and potatoes of the work happens. Um, in terms of finding a clinician, if you're comfortable, you can ask around in your department. You, know, you can try to find ways to do it anonymously, uh, or in the case of our affiliate union leaders at the IFF, uh, we recommend that they send out a survey to their membership and say, you know, this survey is anonymous. If you've received mental health treatment and you liked your provider and would recommend them to someone else, uh, let us know who that person is so we can make more referrals to qualified mental health clinicians. And, and just, just one extra thing, which is many of our first responders are the mental health system of last resort. So they may be the very people in your community who are involved on checking on people who uh, are in a suicidal crisis. And uh, there may be real concerns about dual relationships and that may be somewhat tricky to navigate. And so, in, especially in smaller communities, which is a lot of America, um, just some real mindfulness that the, for example, the police officer who is, does your well checks across several counties uh, when it's their rotation, uh, and the person you call may also be a person who then needs care. And so how, how might your system handle that? So helping train up mental health clinicians in cultural competence for the fire service is a priority for the IFF. We've received grant funding to create a training course for mental health professionals who want to treat firefighters and EMS professionals. Um, that training should launch sometime in 2021, so next year. Um, and there's a lot to cover. You know, there's certain lingo for all of these different professions within first responders. There's cultural norms that you need to know about. Um, one other question to ask mental health professionals if you're seeking treatment is, are you willing to receive more training in this population? You know, are you willing to come and do ride-alongs, whether that's with a police officer uh, or on the fire engine? Um, you know, if the clinician is not willing to go do some of those things, to learn more about what the job and what these people's lives look like, maybe that's an indication that you, that you should find another clinician. Uh, or maybe they know, you know, maybe they have family members who are in that type of service and they really understand what that profession looks like. Um, but that it's really important. Um, cultural competency isn't just a one and done. And just because you've worked with veterans or law enforcement um, doesn't mean that you automatically know everything about all of the different types of first responders that are out there. Um, so our training program that's going to launch next year, it's going to have three components. There will be an online component that's free available to anyone. So any mental, uh, any mental health clinician who wants to take that um, there will be an in-person classroom setting that'll be co-facilitated by a mental health professional and a firefighter. Uh, and then there's also an experiential portion. Uh, the IFF has a program called Fire Ops 101, Feel the Heat, uh, where we take members of the community, including elected officials, uh, mental health clinicians, and others, uh, and give them a taste of what it's like to work in the fire service. So you put the gear on, you know, you've got the self-contained breathing apparatus and all of, you can feel how heavy it is, how difficult it is to breathe in this equipment. 
uh, and you go through different rotations to see different aspects of the job. Uh, so I was lucky enough to go through it earlier this year uh, and the rotations that we went through, you know, we, we did, we went into a burning building. Uh, you know, we dragged the hose into the building, uh, supervised, of course, in a safe way. Uh, we got to use the uh, equipment, the jaws of life to see what it's like to cut open uh, a smashed up vehicle. Uh, we had a simulated EMS call where our uh, dummy patient was experiencing a cardiac event. Uh, so these events are happening around the US and Canada sponsored by the IAFF. Uh, and they're great opportunities to get a taste of what that's like. Uh, and like I said, you can also do ride-alongs with your local department uh, to build trust, make those connections and make it more likely uh, that you'll get referrals from people in these professions. I just wanna ask another question along the lines of treatment and the clinical side while we're on this topic. So with some of the groups that I work with, which are not uniform personnel, uh, they're not in either of the two groups that we're mostly discussing. They're in the corporate world. And if the word suicide comes up associated with their name, they literally uh, maybe put off a ship or put off a particular group and that's it. And so what we've found and what many of the clinicians and some of the folks I work with have found is that if we talk about depression, then they're more comfortable. And I'm curious if that comes up in any of the work you all are doing where some people, where the stigma, it's not only just the psychological thing for them, it's truly, they can be put off, um, put off the ship or whatever. And so I'm curious to know if that's also something that comes into your work life where some people are more comfortable talking about depression than the idea that potentially someone's suicide. Carolyn, thank you. That is so true. And and uh, I, I, for the listening audience, and they may already know you about being put off the ship, these are people like working on a cruise ship. And if they say that they're suicidal, they just get left somewhere and they don't get to continue their job. And so there's a real worry about what's acceptable that I can get care for. Um, I have, uh, my experience is there are a few things that people who are at risk of suicide might report that it is very, very low barrier, low stigma to report. Uh, for a lot of the folks that I've worked with, uh, it has been talking about post-trauma and stress, um, post-traumatic stress, not even disorder. They like to call it just post-trauma and, and post-trauma stress. Um, they'll also talk about indigestion. So for a lot, especially a lot of the men that I've worked with uh, who might be at high risk for suicide, they're also having like stomach discomfort, gastrointestinal problems. And this makes real sense. Uh, if you know a lot about the limbic system, this isn't a surprise. And they'll go see their doctor talking about that. And then they'll mention insomnia. And insomnia is one of those things that uh, it can put you at risk for so many problems. And we know that sleep problems really uh, are precedent for suicidality, suicide attempt and death. And so when people start talking about their insomnia, that's like so acceptable. You can say to anyone that you haven't been sleeping well and everyone can feel empathy with that. It's very easy to get care for that. And we know that helping people sleep well reduces their suicide risk. And so these are things that if I have somebody who's at risk for suicide, as soon as I can help somebody be very physically safe, insomnia is almost, almost always after like immediate safety and wellness, one of the first things that we tackle because it's easy to talk about and people are very willing to get help for it. And it's so, so important. I mean, sleep is crucial. We all know that we might not all prioritize that in the way that we need to, 
Uh, but the nature of these jobs are some nights you might not sleep. You might get woken up four or five times. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think sleep is a very acceptable thing to talk about in the fire service. You know, when the crew is coming on shift and there's a, a crew leaving that shift, it's, well, did you guys sleep last night? How many calls, how many runs did you go on? Uh, in fire service in particular, uh, like Dr. Foreman said, um, for us, it's PTSD. So we know that in the general population, about 9% of people uh, will experience PTSD at some point in their lives. Uh, and for firefighters, it's about 22%. You know, the estimates vary, but that's a generally accepted estimate uh, of how many firefighters at some point in their career will, will experience PTSD uh, to a level that might warrant a diagnosis. Um, it's become more and more acceptable to talk about PTSD uh, because less and less it's being seen as a moral failing or a, a personal failing, which it's not, of course, uh, and more seen as a as a problem that is attributable directly to the job. A couple of times here, we've talked a little bit about treatment um, and the different kinds of treatments that um, that might help in um, in an incident where someone is considering suicide. So, can you tell us a little bit about a little bit more about the main types of treatments um, that can be beneficial for a patient who is suicidal? You know, uh, I'm so glad that you asked because there are a lot of kinds of treatment that you might read about in the media or um, a lot of things that people believe uh, reduce suicide risk. And, and that may or may not be true. I mean, we just really haven't funded all the research that we need to fund and not even close. But there are a couple of major categories. There's really three major categories of evidence-based effective ways to prevent a suicide death. One of the most important one is called, is called lethal means restriction. And that means um, putting some time and space between someone who's suicidal and the highly lethal means that they would use to end their life. Um, for most people and probably for many first responders, that may be their firearm. Again, full disclosure, I'm a firearm owner, uh, including some of the kinds of firearms that are, are more controversial. This isn't uh, a political statement, but we, we also know that if you have easy access to firearms and you are having a mental health crisis, that you're more at risk of not surviving that mental health crisis. Suicidal feelings come and go. Those won't kill you. It's the firearm that will. And so this is a lot like um, that real transition in America where we started to have seat belts and we started to have uh, airbags um, and we started to improve road design because we knew that human beings weren't gonna become better drivers. We were just gonna make it a lot easier to survive uh, a traffic accident. Well, with lethal means uh, education, what we're doing is we're making it a lot uh, easier to survive a suicidal crisis. And that is a part of safety planning. And I happen to know that uh, Sarah Burns here knows a lot about that and about some of the free trainings that clinicians can get to help folks with this. Absolutely. Um, so to, to say a little more about that, when we talk about helping somebody who's having thoughts about suicide uh, reduce access to their own lethal means, you know, this is a collaborative process. This is not something being done to them being done with them, uh, and they're consenting to the process. We also know that this isn't necessarily an intervention that has to be done by a mental health professional. Mental health professionals can certainly receive training in it, and they should, uh, but peer support is huge. You know, if 
a firefighter or first responder is willing to let one of their buddies who's a military veteran, who's comfortable with firearms, who they trust to hold on to their firearms for a few days and, and store them safely, that's great. You know, that's an intervention that's happening in the community that doesn't require this higher level of care. You know, let's solve these problems at the lowest level that we can. Um, and we like to talk about it like how you might hold on to somebody's car keys if they're drunk. You know, friends don't let friends drive drunk. So if you're drinking, I'm gonna hold on to your keys for you for tonight. I'm not taking away your keys forever. <laughs> I'm just saying for these couple hours, while you're especially impaired and it's not safe for you to drive your car, we're gonna hold on to your keys. It's the exact same thing with firearms. If somebody in your family, uh, a spouse or a child, or you are experiencing mental health crisis, uh, whether it's depression, whether it's really acute suicidal ideation, um, you know, this is, falls within the Ten Commandments of gun safety. You know, don't operate a firearm while you're impaired. So let's work on this together. You know, this doesn't have to be an adversarial uh, conversation. It's, you know, if an alternative is ha having somebody go to the hospital and, and potentially have an inpatient stay, if, it, if a different way to just keep them alive, get them through a short-term crisis, and then engage them in outpatient treatment is, hey, you know, we need to come up with a plan to keep you safe. Uh, for the next 24, 36 hours until your appointment with the mental health clinician. Um, can part of that plan be that we have your brother come over uh, and he either store the firearms offsite for that period of time, or perhaps we're gonna change the combination uh, on the gun safes uh, so it's something you don't know, or many, many other creative solutions to put some time and distance between somebody and the things they might use to harm themselves. And, and just a just a statistic, because Sarah's better at it than at them than me. But only about forty three percent of American gun owners use um, recommended safe storage practices, and so and and that may include some of our first responders. And so having a first responder culture of safe storage and knowing about lethal means and how to how to alter gun storage plans. Uh, during suicidal crises could really reduce suicide deaths uh, in the first responder community. And keep on rolling, Sarah. There is an excellent training uh, from the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. Uh, the short name of the training is CALM. It stands for Counseling on Access to Lethal Means. Uh, it's a little less than two hours and it's online. You can get it for free at the Suicide Prevention Resource Center website. Uh, and it's a, a training about how to have these conversations. You know, how do you have those negotiations with somebody about the steps that they're willing to help keep themselves safe uh, in a way that's non-threatening and non-judgmental? Uh, and even though the training has the word counseling in the title, I recommend this training for almost anybody, uh, whether you're a first responder, you're a peer supporter, you're a licensed mental health professional. Uh, it's a free online training. It's excellent. Everybody should take that. Yeah, this would be great for um, unit leadership or for yeah, in within uh, your service, uh, folks who are doing peer support or folks who are doing sort of HR. This is a wonderful thing for uh, several leaders in your organization to be uh, experienced with because it ends up just being so useful. When I first started at the IFF a few years ago and started giving presentations to our membership uh, about suicide prevention and about reducing access to lethal means, I wasn't sure how it was going to be received. You know, you have these big uh, conferences that, that we have. We have health and safety conferences. We have a leadership conference every year. Uh, and, you know, I co-teach these presentations with a firefighter and we teach to reduce access to lethal means as 
an early step if somebody's at risk for suicide while you're doing other things like trying to get them into treatment. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised uh, that I have people come up to me after these presentations and say, well, I have guns in my gun safe now that aren't mine. And I just say, that's great. And they, you know, they'll say things like, you mean that's what I was supposed to have been doing? Like I've been doing that all along. And I say, yes, you should, you know, keep doing this. You're doing a great job. Uh, you saw a problem, you found a solution to a problem and it's great. Uh, so I think these types of conversations can be uh, more accepted than we might think mm -hmm. as long as they're being handled appropriately uh, and often being done at the peer level, uh, not the idea Absolutely. that somebody else is trying to take away your guns. And, and I have actually found that when you're doing safety planning with folks and then you start talking about lethal means and talking about their firearms, um, it's really a, a sort of a, a failing of the mental health industry where a lot of people who are mental health professionals are not gun owners and aren't as conversant, like they, they don't understand language about guns, they don't understand about, about storage, they don't know how gun lock works, they don't know when something has a firing pin versus, you know, being a different type of uh, firearm, like, it, like it's, you know, it, there's all of that cultural stuff. And so I would encourage mental health providers to become more gun conversant. I think that's on us. And then like, I have found that it's clinically, cause I've, I've negotiated what we're gonna do to make this firearm situation safer with just hundreds of people. Uh, and it goes very well. Like it's, it's actually not a big, I mean, it is a big deal. It's often life-saving, but like people are usually willing to let their friend who they're very comfortable with, for example, store their firearm. I had one person who, while we were in session talking about that, he had a buddy uh, who worked for the sheriff's department and that buddy had a key to his house and the guy got in, got the firearm and, and was texting back pictures. And we were just, I was watching the uh, firearm be removed and stored with somebody that this person really trusted. This is totally doable. And, and I love the word that Sarah used. It's very practical. So we've mentioned a couple times this idea of safety planning. I want to expand on that a little bit. Um, that this isn't this amorphous term that, has, you know, what, what we're really talking about is a defined intervention uh, that was created by Dr. Barbara Stanley at Columbia University and Dr. Greg Brown at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, the safety planning intervention is uh, a conversation. It's a collaborative process where a peer supporter, a professional, somebody who cares about somebody who's at risk for suicide, um, helps them to create a prioritized list of coping strategies that they can use the next time they're in a suicidal crisis. Uh, so the first step of the plan helps them recognize when that crisis is about to occur. It's recognizing one's own warning signs. Uh, the next steps are different levels of intervention. They start with the least restrictive. So things you can do by yourself without contacting anybody else, all the way through the next couple steps of, you know, who are the professional resources that you would reach out to if things got so bad and none of these other earlier steps worked. And then step six of the safety plan is exactly what we've been talking about, helping that person reduce their own access to lethal means. Um, there's some great research on the safety planning intervention that was done with veterans uh, and other populations. Um, so far, the research has shown that it works. It reduces uh, suicide deaths uh, for veterans who got this intervention in an emergency department who were not going to be admitted. Uh, they were going to be sent on their way and sent home. Uh, and it also increases treatment engagement. So people who get these safety plans, they feel a part of the process and they're more willing to continue in treatment. Um, one of the just, really- 
Oh, go, I was just saying, you can just Google safety plans and this, this six-step plan that uh, Sarah Burns is mentioning is the Stanley and Brown safety plan. It's a standardized template. You can find apps for your phone. It's, it's free and it's widely available and you can get those and adapt those for the units that you might be working with. Um, keep going, Sarah. I'm so sorry. You're great. No, thank you for adding. This is, um, we've done a lot of work in this area. I've been fortunate to work with uh, Dr. Stanley and Dr. Brown on this. Um, we have a project currently actually with uh, Dr. Nathan Kimbrell at Duke University where we're uh, working with the creators to adapt the safety planning intervention for the fire service. Uh, so later on this year in 2020, we'll be releasing a safety planning intervention for fire service peer supporters uh, online training that's an advanced peer support training uh, that will be available to folks who have already taken our uh, IFF two-day peer support training. Uh, because it is a little bit of an advanced skill. So our, our regular training covers things like active listening and confidentiality, action planning, crisis intervention, things like that. Uh, so once you get those basics down, there's this advanced course that's going to be coming out. Um, one of the adaptations that we made is really talking about this plan as somebody's personal standard operating procedure or SOP if they're having suicidal thoughts. Uh, in the fire service and uh, emergency medical services, um, a lot of the work that occurs is manualized. You know, patient has certain conditions, certain thing is happening with, uh, you know, a single story structure fire, uh, and here's the protocol that's followed to respond to that incident. So we're really likening this intervention uh, to that. It's, it's your own personal SOP that you're going to help create for the next time that you have suicidal thoughts. And, and if you are going to get care uh, in any clinic for, for suicidality, and this is not offered to you, Go, go somewhere else. This is so incredibly standard. And I know we mentioned that there were sort of three sort of groups of things that have evidence based. So this sort of lethal means education and safety planning is one. We did, we we probably can talk briefly about clinical care, but the truth is that the evidence-based clinical care that's likely to reduce your suicidality is very hard to get to, quite honestly. And there are a couple of modalities, and, and we can talk about those briefly because there's then this whole other category that I feel like would be a real strength for first responders. But for clinical care, um, dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT, is a therapy that is used a lot with uh, folks who have mood dysregulation issues and often are at the highest risk for suicide. It's been, uh, Marshall Linehan would tell you that all therapy makes you feel better, but only some therapy is proven to save your life. And DBT is a, a therapy that we know reduces suicide attempts and deaths over the lifespan. There's also um, the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality, or CAMS, uh, by Dr. David Jobes, and he works a lot with the DBT folks. And so if you can get with a therapist who is CAMS trained or who is DBT trained, your chances of getting suicide-competent therapeutic care are much higher. And I'm super curious about what Carolyn and Sarah think about that. Yeah, there's also a couple other, uh, you know, therapies that have evidence along with dialectical behavior therapy and the collaborative assessment and management of suicidality. There are a couple different types or flavors of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a well-known treatment modality as well. There's cognitive behavioral therapy for suicide prevention. Uh, and there's also uh, CTSP, cognitive therapy for suicide prevention. Um, so there are a lot of similarities between these clinical, you know, treatments that one would get. Um, April, I don't know if you want to talk a little more about the similarities between all of them. You know, they're all pretty collaborative and they all teach a skill set 
that the person didn't have before. And I think that's so important and it actually works well, I think with the first responder community because they're incredibly concrete. So um, unlike sort of your your uh, prototype of therapy in your head where you lay on a couch and talk about your mother not loving you enough. In fact, you're walking in there and they're saying like, uh, I've never known therapy to work if you die first. So the most important thing we're gonna talk about is helping, uh, helping you not feel and not take action to kill yourself. And it will get, it's very focused. It's very skill oriented. It's very practical and concrete. Uh, It's why I found that using these kinds of clinical interventions with men specifically and men in like the armed forces, it like fits very well culturally. Um, And uh, I, they're, they're such practical skills. Honestly, they're things that I use outside of therapy. They're just really good for improving your overall health and quality of life. And they're very, uh, like a standard operating procedure, like Sarah mentioned, one, two, three, four. They're also collaborative in that uh, you are setting your goals uh, as, as the person going in to get help. The therapist isn't saying be less depressed or be a good patient. It is what is a good life? What is a life worth living? And how do we deal with this so that you can continue to have or start to have a good life. And I think um, when you're looking at things that are concrete, they're practical, and they're focused on what a good life is, more than being a, a good mental patient, um, I, you're, you're definitely going to get towards that trajectory. They're also incredibly focused on prioritizing suicidality and suicide-related behaviors. And uh, if you want to talk about your mother, that's great, but only when I know that you can keep yourself alive. Um, and, and, and so you're going to see that kind of focus in therapy. So I'll just say that, again, so much of the group that I actually deal with are not uniform personnel, like the guys that, for the most part, and ladies you're talking about. But what we found in the corporate world, and it's a lot along the line, Sarah, of what you were saying, where you get recommendations from people within, what, what we found is that many times what works is is helping the HR person or helping the the manager who's ever in charge find out how to go to the EAP or go to where the knowledge base is and say this isn't someone that's dealing with general problems this is someone that we've observed or we've seen this or that which could be about depression or perhaps they have expressed suicide ideation and so we tend to then have people recognize that they need to ask a professional group to recommend someone who is as knowledgeable as you ladies are on what the research is saying works. Because what we've seen so many times, unfortunately, is that someone would simply say to someone within the organization, you need to go see a counselor and then tick the box. And then we all know that's not the answer. And so from our perspective, it's it's just the 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 knowledge that not everyone can treat every situation well. And so it's looking to see then who might know. And so for example, in one of our cases, we had a a situation where a pilot took his life and it was the pilots that had been with him the night before were devastated because when they learned later um, about what, what all he was really talking about, I know we're gonna get into later a little bit about the kinds of things people look for, But when they were educated later, they realized they saw all the signs he needed help, but they didn't know. And so a lot of what we did, back to the point here, is that we made sure that the EAP knew that the pilots that were coming in, the people that were coming in, 
we're dealing with something very different. And so we tried really hard to make sure they got someone who is knowledgeable on the clinical side. So that's sort that of a, is a great point, Carolyn. And I think um, another thing that units can do is make sure that their EAP and HR resources know how to find suicide care competent practitioners. I think you're making a wonderful point um, because there, there isn't really a standard for EAP professionals to to know how to do that kind of referral. And that's like a, a really industry specific kind of referral that um, first responders might need from their EAP. And looking for EAPs that are good at finding those uh, providers that have suicide care um, competencies. And, and Sarah, I saw you have a comment as well. One of the other things, well, I guess you mentioned it already, Dr. Furman. One of the things that is common among all of these treatments that are evidence-based for suicide is they all focus on suicide. And I know that that sounds pretty basic. Um, it used to be that people thought that, you know, if somebody's depressed and is thinking about suicide, that if we just treat the depression, the suicide part would, would totally go away and that would solve the problem. I'm not saying we don't also want to treat the depression, but I'm saying that the treatment that somebody gets if they're suicidal should focus on that uh, and helping them cope with that experience in particular. Um, so Dr. Perman, I know you mentioned there were three categories of interventions that we know that worked. You know, the first was reducing access to lethal means and safety planning type uh, activities. The second, we talked about these specific type of therapies uh, that have evidence have we gotten to the third category yet? No, but the third category is really juicy. It's incredibly simple and it has a lot of evidence that it's really effective and it would be, it's a great fit for, for first responders. And that's why I get excited. So it's a concept called caring contacts. And there is an overwhelming body of literature that shows that people at risk of suicide, when they get non-demanding caring contacts from clinicians and from other people, just checking to see how they're doing and letting them know, hey, I'm thinking about you, that over time they reattempt suicide less often or they're less likely to die by suicide. And this is a, such a powerful thing that is relatively low resource and low skill um, and, and just it's just intentional, and I hate to say scheduled, but kind of on a schedule, like scheduled, just letting you know I'm thinking of you. You know that you can contact me anytime. Uh, hope everything's going well. Um, reach out to me if you feel like it, but not call me now, like non-demanding. And uh, I, I love caring contacts. Uh, we find that caring contacts post emergency room care. So even just want, you know, knowing every month you're going to get a letter from the nurse that saw you in the emergency room for the next year or two will reduce the, your risk of needing to go back to the emergency room, getting it from your provider, but also getting it from from folks who are important to you. Uh, and Sarah, I bet you know something about caring contacts as well. Caring contacts are great. There's a lot of research that shows that, that it works. It does reduce suicidal behaviors, hospital readmissions, emergency department visits. It's been tested in a lot of different modalities. You know, they've tested physical letters, they've tested text messages, phone calls, emails. Um, and what Dr. Furman said is really important about it being non-demanding. You know, oftentimes as mental health professionals, I'm sure we've all sent these letters that say, you know, dear Mr. So-and-so, you've missed your last three appointments. And if you don't keep your next scheduled appointment, we're going to close your case. So call us immediately and, you know, blah, blah, blah. One, that's pretty demanding. And two, it's not very caring. 
So it's totally changing the way um, that traditional mental health treatment systems operate. You know, there are regulatory issues where if someone doesn't come in for a while, their case may need to be closed or things like that. Um, but really changing the tone of the communication is important. You know, it's not call me immediately. It's, I remember you, I care about you. If you ever need us again, we're still here for you. Here's how you can reach out to us if you choose to. I was just remembering, um, you know, as we were getting ready for uh, this podcast to record, I had somebody uh, who hung on to a caring contact and hung on to a safety plan with my phone number on it. And I had not been in that clinic for about a year and a half. And I hadn't seen this person in a while. And they found me because they, you know, people hang on to those caring contacts. And I was able to get that person in touch with the services that they needed to walk into that same day if they wanted. It, people hang on to caring contacts and will grab onto them in, in crises. And so like that genuine, non-demanding, very personal and personable concern is it's just, any way that it can be expressed. Another example of that, at a previous job I worked at on my year anniversary of working there, HR sent me a postcard to my home address. I'm sure they sent the same postcard to everybody, but it was so nice. It was, you know, congratulations on a year of working with us. You know, we look forward to the next year or whatever it said. Uh, but not many of us get these non-demand caring contacts uh, regularly. Uh, so any way that our, you know, employers, mental health professionals, and others uh, can design communication around this, it's surprising uh, how big of an effect it can have. You know, I, it, this to me is such a great example, though, of how the contributions of yourselves that are they're treating this, looking at this daily, has made such a difference. Because I can remember back about 35 years ago, uh, when it a major airline accident happened that affected me personally. And I remember in that situation, talking later to the responders, they had gotten the name and the information from some of the, um, some of the clinicians that came out, not very many back then, Sarah, I'm sure you, you know what I'm talking about in, in April as well, not a lot of that back then, but several of them did keep the name and the contacts of the group that came out. And a few weeks later, they were ready to get that help and it wasn't available. And so the professionals didn't understand what you understand. You know what I'm saying? It was like, we're here now, we're going to do this now. And in fact, when they were not available, it did a whole lot more damage. Um, and so I think that's an important thing for a lot of people to understand. There's, as you know, over the years, there's been such a rush to go to sites from the mental health side and then not the people later, which is of course, doesn't apply to you, but you know what I'm saying? It's like people would, they rush to the site because it, it looks so good on the CV, but then later when the people are there and they really need the help locally, the folks aren't there. And so I think what you're saying is so important because we know this is really uh, so valuable. Well, and the difference between these two sort of approaches, Carolyn, that you're talking about is the self-gratifying look. I'm a first responder. I'm rushing to the scene because that's how awesome first responders are. Even us shrinks want to be one, right? Um, versus the real understanding that, that when the adrenaline wears off, when the attention wears down, when everyone's, that's when, that's when often other problems emerge. And I think, um, you know, the things that my experience is when people contact you, it is, hey, I'm so-and-so, do you remember me? 
and and I have a memory like Swiss cheese sometimes but usually in fact I do and it's like I am so glad you called yes I do how is xyz what can I help you with right now I'm so glad you kept my number always hang on to my number because it, that sense that there is somebody looking out for me and that that it does not go away can be life-saving one of the, the things also, because as I mentioned, I'm a mental health educator with the corporate world. Um, after Columbine, a few years ago, a professional psychologist that I have a lot of respect for came to me. We were both working at an airline at the time. He was involved with the EAP. And he said to me, he said, did you go to Columbine? And I said, no, I don't have a client there. <laughs> and he said, well, Carolyn, we all went. He said, everybody went. And I said, you know, I'll just say it again. I don't have a client there. But I think there's, there's, it, it, is, it is interesting how when things are on in the media and on the front page, there's such a, it, it is a draw. And I so get what you're saying, April, that it's a good side of the mental health profession that responds. But I, but I, I do think it's the folks that are there day in and day out, which I'm sure, Sarah, with a lot of the a lot of your folks and, and certainly April with your experience, it's just such an important, um, I think for the long-term for people to see that that's who we really are, as opposed to like he said to me, he said, everybody that was anybody went. And I thought that's a different way <laughs> of looking at it. And so I'm glad we've evolved to where there are the community programs, the day in, the day out, that are educating others, um, the mental health people as well. Because I do think, like I said, I don't think it comes from a bad place, but I think it does harm in terms of the perception. And Lord knows we have enough of that problem. Yeah, I think first responders, and, and Sarah will have her own opinion, but I think first responders know if you're a drama junkie or if you're a person who's there to be a support for the long haul. And I, um, I think there is um, real value in um, cultivating, uh, this is a, an enduring relationship that keeps you well, and I'm here Four years from now, if it needs to be that that person who called was someone I probably uh, met clinically, um, I want to say six or seven years ago, and you know that interacted with a particular unit that had a lot of suicide uh, suicides and attempts and risk, and then we worked together pretty intensely for a year or two, but then all of the members of that unit have called me or a very small group of clinicians off and on. And um, I handed them off to someone who knew just what group it was. Like I had prepared for when I would leave and said, when this group calls, I made sure someone would always come running for them. And I think our first responders must know the difference between the kind of person that is always going to have your back versus the, the person that's a looky-loo. Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, our members, firefighters, paramedics, you know, they know, they can tell the difference between somebody who... Uh, is doing it more for themselves than for the membership. Uh, but the time to vet mental health clinicians, the time to develop these relationships with resources in your local area is not when you need them. You know, build the shelter before the storm. So start now, start finding um, these resources, these people who are gonna be there for you in the long haul. You know, don't wait uh, until there's another active shooter situation or a natural disaster explosion, large fires. 
um, you know, these are proactive steps that can be taken so that if somebody needs treatment in the future, and somebody will, uh, you know where to send them and you can help them get there quickly. Thank you to April and Sarah for coming on the podcast and sharing with us today. And thank you also to Carolyn for co-hosting with me today. Before we wrap up today, we want to emphasize that if you are struggling right now, please reach out and ask for help. Your life is so important and it's okay to ask for help. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is open 24-7 with both English and Spanish speakers. You can also text HOME to 741-741 to reach a crisis counselor. Both of these resources are free and confidential. Also, April and Sarah provided a number of online resources during our conversation, which we've included in the show notes of this episode. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with April and Sarah on stigma and culture, peer support, and resources. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.